Hello and welcome to Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by Fangraphs and by our Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Before I say hello to Ben, I should say because I forgot and forgot again, this is episode number 1033 of the Effectively Wild podcast, which is a big number. Hello, Ben. Sorry about that. To do that twice in a row. <laughs> Took the words right out of my mouth. Hello. We will be joined later in this team preview episode by Ted Berg to talk about the New York Mets and by Jake Mintz to talk about the Baltimore Orioles. But before we do that, I guess we can banter a little bit because why not? Uh, there was a baseball play in the World Baseball Classic just the other day, which is at least unlike, I think, unlike a baseball play that I can recall seeing. I have a bad memory, so maybe we can test yours. But the play I am referring to is a fairly run-of-the-mill caught stealing. What's not run-of-the-mill is that Nelson Cruz was attempting to steal a base in the first place against Yadier Molina. I don't really know mm-hmm. what the thought process was there. <laughs> also not run-of-the-mill. Uh, Javier Baez catching the ball, pointing at Yadier Molina while the ball was still in flight. The point being celebratory. Baez not looking at the ball or Nelson Cruz at all. Baez catching the ball, applying a tag to Nelson Cruz, getting the out, then being joined in celebration by the catcher and pitcher who wisely or maybe not wisely waited until after the conclusion of the play to celebrate the out. Do you remember seeing anything like this before? I don't think so. And there aren't that many baseball plays where you can do this like I'm thinking of this as kind of the baseball equivalent of a basketball player making the shot and then before it goes in turning around and celebrating which is great and I guess the closest baseball equivalent to that usually would be a a hitter hitting a home run and knowing that it's gone off the bat and not watching it go and just going into his trot or looking at his dugout or whatever it is. But you don't usually see that on defense. That's a rarity. And you don't even usually see highlights in spring training. Like spring training is more notable for apathy that players exhibit like the Astrubal Cabrera play about a week or so ago where he got caught in a rundown and he just walked off the field because he didn't have the energy to actually play out the string. So you see that and you see guys losing balls in the outfield or balls getting stuck under the outfield wall and kind of weird wacky plays that you probably wouldn't see during the regular season. It's rare that you just see an incredibly cool play like that might be one of the best looking most visually appealing plays of the season in mid-march but that's what this was and i guess we can add it to the pantheon of javi bias tags i can't think of too many scenarios where you would have an opportunity to do this and uh, you'd be looking at maybe you know catching like a routine a can of corn or an infield fly where you sort of have a chance you think maybe we have an automatic out coming i'm looking at the last out of the World Series, which of course featured the Cubs, Mike Montgomery pitching to Michael Martinez, as all last yes. outs of World Series should be. And unfortunately, I'm just looking at the the video clip here, and it's it's sort of what the live footage would have shown. So you don't get to see very much, but you've got the ground ball hit to Chris Bryant. The camera shifts immediately over to Anthony Rizzo. All Anthony Rizzo has to do is catch a baseball, right? Mm-hmm. Thrown to first base. It's just an ordinary play. But of course, we don't see Anthony Rizzo do anything to celebrate until right after. So it just so happens the throw is a little high, maybe close to an error. That would have been something. But the throw is a little high. Anthony Rizzo reaches up to catch the ball. And as soon as the ball is in the pocket of his glove, his other hand reaches up to the same height so that he's making the celebratory goalpost position. Mm -hmm. I was wishing that there would be another camera angle that would allow me to follow Javier Baez to see when (laughs) he started celebrating as this play was made. I don't know if that camera angle exists. It's probably somewhere. I can tell you that it didn't look like he was celebrating as the ball was hit to Bryant. Uh, Maybe Mm -hmm. he was nervous. Maybe he has less faith in Chris Bryant fielding a grand ball than he has in his own ability to blind catch a throw and apply a tag. But... I like the flourish. It's one of those things where I guess it's really easy to see how it could have gone wrong and it would have been absolutely embarrassing, sort of a Leon Lett kind of moment, I guess, Mm -hmm. with maybe lower stakes. But nevertheless, I like the flourish. I like Baez. In the podcast, we will talk to Jake Mintz about how he enjoys watching Jonathan Scope, even though there are a lot of things that Jonathan Scope does that one might say are suboptimal. But, you know, he's fun. And Javier Baez is Mm -hmm. fun in the way that you hope that 
players don't get that fun programmed out of them. Yeah, and the Bryant play you brought up was fun, not just because it was so historic, but because Bryant did seem to have that awareness of what was about to happen, and he was basically grinning ear to ear as he was fielding and completing that play, which was great. It kind of gave you the sense that he knew what was happening and he thought it was amazing that he was going to be the one to seal the deal, but he still had to complete the play and he still had to field the ball and then he still had to throw the ball and he still had to watch to make sure he didn't throw it away. So not quite as nonchalant and casual and cool as Javi Baez's tag. And I guess that's just emblematic of his situational awareness, which or spatial awareness, which lets him make these incredible tags because he seems to have a great sense of where his body is and where the bag is and where the runner is. And maybe the fact that the runner was Nelson Cruz gave him additional confidence that he was going to get this out. But you don't usually see that sort of thing. Keep your eye on the ball is the first thing that you are told to do when you're learning how to play baseball. And he didn't really do that here, and he didn't need to. So, yeah, yeah great, great play. I guess what's weird is that if Javier Baez actually knew where the baseball was always going, it wouldn't swing and miss and look ugly so much. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I guess he knew it was a fastball. Yeah. All right. So we will get to the previews. Okay, it is time to talk about the New York Mets. I know a lot of people have been tweeting and emailing us wondering why we haven't talked about the Mets yet, if we skipped them, if the projections totally hate them, what the deal was. I think the projections probably may have hated them at the time that we determined the schedule for this podcast, but they have since changed and we have not changed. So that's why we're just getting to the Mets now. So we still have a good team to talk about this late in the series, and we're going to talk about it with Ted Berg, who writes for USA Today's For the Win site. Hey, Ted. Hey, Ben, what's up? So I know that this is somewhat risky to say because we're recording this a day early or before this runs, and so there is still time for someone to hurt himself and be out for the season before this actually goes up. But for now, things are looking good. No one is actually hurt. There was the Zach Wheeler scare earlier in the spring, but starting pitcher-wise, everyone is sort of plugging along. And I guess for a Mets fan or Mets follower, every day that you can get closer to the end of the season with everyone's arm intact is has to be considered a success yeah i mean it also feels ominous like maybe that just means it's going to be that much more disastrous when they all go down in the same week but yeah for the most part it seems generally positive i mean harvey has been for whatever it's worth knocked around a little bit in some grapefruit league games and there's some concerns that his velocity is a little bit down the game today people said he was he was throwing 92 to 95 which is below where he's normally at but not like, I don't know, not terrifying Jared Weaver lack of velocity or anything. Yeah, and it's spring training, so that's okay. As long as you're not right. suffering some sort of elbow soreness, which if you're a Met, eventually leads to a DL stint and eventually leads to you yeah. being out for the season and possibly having surgery. Initially, it's day-to-day. Initially, it's day-to-day, and then there's no structural damage, And but it's, it's going to be a DL stint and then out for the season. <laughs> Related to the starting rotation, and honestly, we could record 30 minutes on pretty much at least six different Mets starters because it's it's a fascinating group. And obviously, last year, things went a little awry health-wise, but the Mets still were a good team. And so it's not hard to forget how good the team can be when it's all working. But anyway, as much as we could talk about everyone all the way to probably Seth Lugo, let's just Noah Syndergaard. We saw him break out last season in a way he was already good. But he broke out. He was he was throwing 98, 99 miles per hour on the regular. He's just it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot left for him to do to improve. He showed up to spring training saying that he wanted to throw even harder because I guess for some people that's possible. Is it this is a stupid question. Is it possible to even contain your enthusiasm for Syndergaard? If you take Noah Syndergaard and you take the known 
baseline, or I guess above baseline, of knowing what Clayton Kershaw is, how much space do you see between them, and how much space do you think would be between them, if any, if Syndergaard actually gets better at something? Yeah, I mean... I don't know that performance-wise, it's that it's it's there, right? K- Kershaw is still clearly a uh, head and shoulders above Syndergaard in terms of on-field performance, but I don't think that distinction is nearly as big or as important as just how many innings Kershaw has pitched and how many years he's stayed healthy. I know he had the hiccups last year, but uh, the with Syndergaard, you know, he's he's. 23, 24, and sort of still in that window for arm injury. And I think, you know, probably from following the Mets, everyone is just a little bit wary of of any young arm. And Syndergaard, especially, this is what I wrote about in the annual essay, it's just he he's had these little there's there's talk of the bone spur issue last year uh, a couple of years ago there was concerns about you know, forearm tightness in spring training and so it always feels like there's just like I said like it always just kind of feels ominous and this is again uh, probably like a, a little bit from being beaten down by watching the Mets for the last 10 years but I think that the the distinction between Syndergaard and Kershaw or, or anybody at that level it's not about what Syndergaard can do because I mean people don't throw 100 miles an hour with curveballs like that and sliders like that and changeups like that and he has great control like there's no there's no flaw in his game really uh it's just that concern or i think you know sort of the the reasonable understanding that at some point he could get hurt and that he doesn't get to where Kershaw is as a uh, as a quick follow up Noah Syndergaard last year faced 51 pitchers uh 51 plate appearances against pitchers ted can you guess the ops he allowed Against pitch against opposing pitchers? Yes. Against pitchers. <laughs> I, I went searching for this, like thinking, who is the last guy a pitcher would want to face? It's a Rollis Chapman, but that would never happen. Noah Syndergaard. What what how do pitchers do at the plate against uh, pitchers? I'm gonna go two hundred OPS. One forty six. <laughs> it was one forty six. That's wow. good for a baseball reference has a stat called T O P S plus. I'm not gonna bother explaining it. I'm just gonna say that T O P S plus ends with a plus and the pitchers had a negative fifty four. <laughs> Wow. Oof. That's like yeah. Robbie Ray territory, right? <laughs> that's right. I feel like exactly. that's the guy. Like, I feel like probably if you surveyed most human beings to say, like, you know, not about even your best chance, just who would you be most afraid to face? It would, I mean, it feels like it has to be Syndergaard. Between the velocity and the hair and the six foot six and 260 pound things. That's that's a terrifying guy to have staring at you. So factoring in performance and fragility, who's the next best guy? If you have to count on someone to be the best, not just in terms of batter per batter, but in total value, which guy of the you know five other guys in the rotation or close to the rotation do you want for, for this season? And I don't know, maybe for the next few seasons, if it's a different answer. I feel like it's DeGrom. Harvey obviously had sort of higher peaks, but with Harvey coming off the the shoulder surgery, obviously there's just a lot to worry about there. This is the theme. But DeGrom seems fully healthy this spring. They say he's throwing even harder than he was last year, for whatever that's worth. But he's now really put together, like even last year when he wasn't as sharp as he had been in the past, still a really, really good season. So he feels a a bit more steady. He's also a little bit older, which I know for the long term isn't the best thing, but probably means he might be past that that window. He's had his Tommy John already. So uh, it feels like that's, that's the next guy to me. I'm reluctant to shift away from the pitchers because, again, they are so good. But looking at the, the Mets outfield, sure you've got UNS Cespedes, you've got Curtis Granison, Jay Bruce, of course, is Tim Tebow starting in center field. And you've got Brandon Nimmo, Juan Lagares in there. I'm sure as a Mets fan, you have an opinion on the situation with Michael Conforto. I would like you to share that opinion. I think that Conforto, if given the opportunity, would have a better season, a more productive season than Bruce this year. I think that Bruce is a fine hitter. I've watched him play the outfield. I see what the stats say about the outfield, uh, and and he's not not that Conforto is is a special outfielder by any stretch, but he just clearly to the eye and I think to the stats as well. Uh, in that we can trust you know two seasons or a season and a half's worth of of defensive stats. Conforto is just a better outfielder, and even if Bruce hits more home runs, Conforto will get on base more, and and so I think. Uh, the offensive distinction isn't big enough to cover the defense. 
I get that Jay Bruce is a super nice guy. They picked up his option. They tried to trade him. They could. They couldn't. They couldn't find a taker, and and so he's back. And you know how baseball kind of works is they they default to the veteran a lot of the times. And I, I don't know that he's done anything to to lose the job. But if you're looking, I, I I don't see how you can look at it from a perspective of how do we win the most games and say that it involves playing Bruce nearly every day and having Conforto on the bench or in AAA, even after sort of a rough year last year. And how well positioned do you think the Mets are to deal with what's looking like, if not a season-long absence of David Wright, definitely a season of not being able to depend on David Wright, given his serious health issues. So are they set to, to do okay without Wright, if that's what it comes to? I think so. I think they're a lot deeper in the infield than they are in well, they have so many outfielders, but they're all corner outfielders and most of it most of them hit left handed. So they're gonna play Granderson in center, but you know, that's not really a center fielder at this point. And and uh whereas on the infield they have so many options, uh even with right out. And and I think that by now, after Wright played, I think a total of seventy five games over the last two seasons, I don't think Sandy Alderson is entering 2017 being like, oh, yeah, well, maybe we'll get 130 games out of David Wright. He's got a chronic back condition, right? So they got to account for that. So so they have options there. Jose Reyes has had a nice season for the Mets last year, a nice part season for the Mets last year. Wilmer Flores meshes lefties so you can get good value out of him. And he is, his glove works at third base, I think, better than it does at shortstop. And they have guys down on the farm. Uh, TJ Rivera is a strange case of like an older prospect that just if you look through his minor league stats just never hit shy of 320 with like a 850 OPS uh, so an intriguing guy I don't think a great defensive player on the infield but but an option there for sure uh, plus they've got like Gavin Caccini who's who's more of a middle infielder but it, again it's they have a bunch of guys who seem at least big league ready and capable for really all of the infield positions, which is a, a good thing, uh, especially since not only was Wright hurt, uh, as Wright already hurt, but uh, as Dribble Cabrera dealt with a knee thing, I think, all last year that he sort of played through, and then Neil Walker finished the season on the DL with the back issue. So I could probably use some guidance here as a, as a Mariners fan who's been watching Felix Hernandez, but as, as sort of a follow-up to Wright, what is the state of sort of the Mets fan, I guess, Mets community, relationship with Wright, who's of course a career Met, legendary Met, was once, maybe still is, but unlikely still on a a Hall of Fame track, who clearly is uh, compromised for reasons out of his own control. But, you know, he's under contract another four years. He's very expensive. How do you sort of balance that desire between wanting the best from your stars and wanting the best for your team and understanding that the situation with Wright is uh, it's currently kind of awkward? So there's a lot to the relationship between David Wright and Mets fans. I mean, Wright is the best position player in the team's history. He grew up a Mets fan. He was drafted and developed by the team. uh, And he has done, I mean, I can't speak about it honestly without sounding fawning how good of a dude he seems like. Like, it's just, it's it seems totally genuine. He's he's extremely helpful to just about everyone. I mean, Adam Rubin just wrote in his... uh, I don't know if you guys know Mike Verkunov and, and Jared Diamond. They do a newsletter, and they, they interviewed Adam Rubin, who was a longtime Mets beat writer, who is best known for his incident with, with Omar Minaya, where Minaya sort of called him out in a press conference. And David Wright called Rubin that night to make sure he was okay. Uh, and that's just like kind of the, the – and that's like reading that was not surprising to me at all. It's just everything you see and hear about this guy says like – he is completely genuine and totally nice and wants so badly to be a part of a winning Mets team. And so Mets fans just crap on him all the time. <laughs> um, and and now I think that, you know, I think there are a lot of, at the, by this point, a lot of Mets fans who realize this is an unfortunate thing. This is a sad thing for David Wright, a guy who did contribute a ton to the franchise. But there are also a lot who say, well, why are they still paying him all this money? Retire. He needs to retire. and. I don't know. I think that while I get that, I get that the Mets have not had the infinite payroll in recent seasons. So you see right, you see the chunk of, of cash he's making 
for how long and you say, well, that's that's where you can you know find some flexibility. But I think it's ridiculous to be expecting the guy to retire at 32 or 33, whatever he is, when all this guy wants to do is play baseball. Like it's just it's incredibly clear that he loves playing baseball and loves every aspect of it and his stardom. So I don't know. I feel like he's done enough for the city of New York and the Mets that we should just let David Wright just just please keep trying. <laughs> so the Mets are almost exactly the same team that they were last year. They're they're hoping, I guess, that they'll be a healthier team. But unless I'm missing something, just about no. everyone who's projected to be on the opening day roster was on the 2016 team, right? So yeah, I mean, like even Fernando Salas, you know, like, like yeah. and they, they didn't even turn over. <laughs> Really, like the edges of their bullpen, their big, their big offseason gets were bringing back Cespedes and bringing back Jerry Blood. <laughs> right. right, like that was basically it. That's not like a a symptom of you know, like a few years ago, if the Mets hadn't done anything, everyone would have said, "Well, Wilpon wouldn't spend," and Bernie Madoff and would have criticized them. And there wasn't that much criticism, really, right? Because it, like the way that they've constructed this team, they're going to live or die with whether those starters are healthy and good. And I mean, that doesn't mean that they couldn't have upgraded somewhere. But was there much frustration? Do you think about? The lack of turnover, the total lack of turnover. I don't think so. I think I think what he said is right, and I think that people sort of recognize that there weren't a lot of obvious moves to make. I'm not super tapped into the current ethos of the angry match fan, but it, it seems like there weren't a lot of places where it it seemed like oh well that was a certain upgrade that they kind of blew. I think you could make a case that they could have signed a first baseman to either pair with or potentially replace Lucas Duda, who was hurt last year. But Duda was an excellent hitter whenever he was healthy before that. So, you know, cutting bait on a guy like that seems sort of, of foolish when, you know, he might be someone you signed to an extension if he if he turns out healthy and hitting again, or, or you know, someone who can bring you back some picks in free agency. Catcher was an issue because just because Travis Darno has been hurt basically every year of his career at this point. And last year, he finally sort of took a step backwards offensively. He'd always hit pretty well for a catcher, but never stayed healthy. And then last year, he both didn't stay healthy and didn't hit. So I think you could have made a case that the Mets should have gone for a Weeders. I think even now you could make a case that they should take a look at Derek Norris. But there weren't like it, there was none of the big ticket things. Like I don't think anyone would have thought Edwin Encarnacion was like the move the Mets would have made. Obviously, it would have made the team better, but I don't know that that's exactly the best use of their resources now. So I'm gonna read you a paragraph. I'm glad I didn't go more on Darno there because I was gonna lose my question. I'm gonna read you a paragraph written eight days ago. It reads: Darno hit his second home run of the spring. Mets are thrilled with his performance so far in camp. The New York Daily News reports. Quote, it's really good to see because he's worked so hard to fix his swing, manager Terry Collins said, and he hasn't had to throw a lot, but he threw very, very well the other day. So hopefully he's on the right track. Early spring training story, whatever. It's very optimistic. But there's been some coverage of Travis Darno changing his swing. Of course, he's been hurt before, as you noted. You always hope that when they're young, which he still is relatively young, that they stop getting hurt at some point. So you said just there in your last answer that the Mets should take a look at Derek Norris even though they have Travis Darno currently slated to start. So uh, should that be taken to suggest that you are less than optimistic about Travis Darno's outlook? I'm just not. I mean, I think he'll probably bounce back as a hitter just based on sheer back of the baseball card stuff. Like you see a guy have a couple of good years and then one bad year. I always kind of figure if he's not, you know, 35, he's going to come back to the mean. It's just the health thing. Like I, I just think at this point, after he has missed so much time, basically every season dating back to when he was in the minors. And and it hasn't been one thing. It's been a series of, of little things. A few of them were on-field stuff, you know, broken feet, stuff like that, a foul ball. But it's that it's never happened, that it feels like you need an insurance policy better than Rene Rivera. Do you think Jose Reyes's season last year, particularly his power, was more than Mets fans should expect this year? That's sort of a leading question, but it's more than he had shown for several years. And of course, power was up across baseball. But is that something that if he does end up playing a lot 
in Wright's absence you think would be repeatable or will he be worse than he was last year? I don't know. I mean, I, I would say probably, yes, he's not going to hit for as much power as he did last year, just because, like you said, it's not something we have seen from him lately. But the numbers did sort of bounce back to his, you know, he had a miserable 2015, and the numbers bounced back right around, if you look at Lisa, I'm looking at baseball reference, OPS Plus was 104. That's just below his career norm. And, you know, the, the power is slightly above that, but not not way above it. And like you said, power was just kind of up last year. So yeah, I think that he's a better hitter than he was in, in 2015. And, and I think that, you know, limiting him a little bit maybe might, might help as he, as he ages. I don't think the Mets are going to play him, you know, for 162 for sure. So going through the rotation real quick, I don't have anything really in front of me, but Noah Syndergaard came up overachieved through harder than expected. Jacob DeGrom, I think Matt Harvey even exceeded velocity expectations early on. And, and last year, late last year, one of the big stories was Robert Selman, who I don't need to explain to you, of course, but he was a rookie, sort of a, a non-prospect rookie, underwhelming, very average minor league numbers, came up, looked good in seven starts, granted five of which were against relatively bad teams. But is this something where you've seen enough to believe that I guess, quote, there's just something about the Mets. Are they doing something at the upper levels to really help the development of these pitchers to exceed what they've been expected to be? Or is this maybe just more a case of these pitchers have been underrated before they've got to the major leagues? I feel like they're doing something and I can't. It's not something I could say I'm like as a reporter, but as uh, someone speculating about it. I do think that there there's a way they're going about developing pitchers that's making them, like you said, because it's not just that they fly through the minors with great numbers in most cases. It's that for Harvey, for, for DeGrom, for Gesellman, they sort of take that step forward when they get to the majors. And that's, that's a, you know, so I think you could say, yeah, well, like someone, I don't know, you could think back to like Nelson Cruz. It was like, oh, he was always good in the minors. Of course he's going to hit in the majors eventually. He just needs more at-bats. It's not like that with the Mets pitchers. It was like Harvey even, and he was a first-round draft pick. But right before they called him up, people were saying, you know, he's not he's not as great a prospect as Wheeler. He's going to be like a mid-rotation type starter. And then he went like full ham on the major leagues for two years. So I tend to think, and... I have, like I said, I have no firm evidence that this is a thing, but I feel like it has something to do with like pitch usage in the high minors, as as though they're they're scheming so that guys are just throwing a lot more breaking pitches and and secondary stuff in counts where they might never throw it in a major league game. But I think that probably the game plans, and this is again, this is a guess on my part, but I think that they're they're targeting like okay, well you're gonna throw. 30% breaking balls this game, 40% breaking balls this game, whatever that number is. And I think it sort of trains them to have those good breaking balls. Because, you know, a guy like like Matt Harvey or DeGrom or guys throwing high 90s, I think a lot of times they can sort of blitz through the minors just gassing people away. And I feel like the Mets are backing off their fastballs probably in the minors on on behalf of developing those secondary pitches. And do you fully believe the Gesellman step that we saw last season? I don't, but I, I've i seen the guy pitch, and it sure looks good. Like, he, the guy's throwing a slider at 91 or something. Like, how, how bad? And he, and he throws strikes. So it seems like, and, and again, like, I'm not a scout, and I'm not sitting in the batter's box trying to identify the difference between, you know, his 90-mile-an-hour slider and, and DeGrom's, but it sure looks good to me, and, and I see why he would start not looking good. Like in terms of just the pure stuff, like he, he, it looks legit. I guess looking at the bullpen picture, you've got Juris Milia, of course, there to close out. And there was Addison Reed, who last year had a, a big season, which he's sort of looked that good before with the Diamondbacks, but not so much in terms of the uh, the home run suppression. But, you know, the bullpen is maybe the only part of the Mets pitching staff that needed to be touched at all in the offseason. But they, they, for the most part, kept it looking pretty similar. They got Jerry Blevins, brought back Fernando Salas. What's your level of confidence in this bullpen unit, uh, even forgetting the fact that Familia is presumably going to be suspended for a month at some point? Yeah, I think the bullpen is definitely the, the weak spot there. Reed had an awesome year, and, and it seemed like a... It seems like a change that sort of came on right when he came to the Mets, and it's a it's a weird thing. He he kind of throws like a lot of fastballs right down the middle, and guys just 
never hit them, it seems like, from watching him. And I don't know if that's just about how well he hides the ball or whatever it is, but it certainly worked for him. So so I'd be fairly confident with Familia and Reed both going, but with Familia out, it feels like the the back end is a little thin. Hansel Robles had a nice year from them for them last year. He's another guy who has, you know, sort of big stuff uh and and has actually done pretty well. He he's added a third pitch so he can go sort of multiple inning stints sometimes, but I don't know that you can expect Fernando Salas to have the fine small sample returns he had in 2016. Uh, Josh Edgen has been a guy who's been up and down who, you know, they've always loved his, his stuff and he's a left-hander, but not a guy who's had a lot of prolonged success. So th- there's not a lot of, uh, I mean, and I, I get that this is everywhere, right? Like all bullpens are going to have some uncertainty towards the bottom. Like at the start of the year, at least with Familia out, there's really outside of Reed and probably Jerry Blevins, there's not a lot of certainty there whatsoever. So you're saying, so last year, Salas, 17 games with the Mets, 19 strikeouts, zero walks. You're saying that this year you expect him to issue some walks? <laughs> I would believe, yes. I would say that if he pitches even as many as 17 innings, he will probably walk <laughs> Okay, so now that we warmed you up with that prediction, can you give us a 2017 win total for the New York Mets? Huh. I'm trying to think about this because I'm I'm definitely as long as you don't hold me to holding this against whatever I'm on record saying <laughs> in print somewhere because I don't I don't remember what that was. It's an evolving opinion. You know what? Like just just the fact that the pitchers have stayed healthy, I'll go like slightly above the. I think the Pakota is 89 now. Right? Is that right? I don't know, but I'll take your word for it. Yeah, I'd go. I'll go. I'll go 92. I'll say 92 wins for the Mets. All right. Does that sound right? Does that sound crazy? Well, is that is that going to be more the same or fewer than the Nationals, do you think? I guess more. I think the Nationals have a better lineup and a more certain pitching staff. I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, I don't know why I feel like the Mets might take the Nationals this year. It might just be that the Nationals kind of feel like they always disappoint, and I don't really think that's true. But... <laughs> I feel like the Mets, but I don't know why, because I think the Nationals on paper at least just have a team. All right. Well, we had 10 Tim Tebow questions prepared, but we are out of time, unfortunately. Oh, no. I'm sorry. So you can find Ted on Twitter at OG Ted Berg. You can listen to him on the For the Win podcast, which you can find on iTunes and all the other places. Thank you, Ted. Thank you for having me. All right. We'll be right back with Jake Mintz to talk about the Orioles. I'm in love with the people. I'm in love with the saints I'm in love with a soldier From Baltimore Baltimore, Baltimore, Baltimore Alright, we're back. We're talking about the Orioles. And to do that, we have half of Cespedes Family Barbecue the half that's better at baseball, I suppose, Jake Mintz. Hey, Jake. How's it going? I, I really do truly hope that I am better at baseball. <laughs> <laughs> it could just be that Jordan hasn't pursued that passion. Maybe he has more natural aptitude than, than you do, but he's he's got better things to do with his time than be at spring training in Florida with the Washington University Bears. Are yes, you Bears? Yes, well done. Very good job. Bears. I've done my research. So you also wrote the essay for the Orioles, and you spent the first couple paragraphs of that piece in the BP book trying to come to terms with the Zach Britton, Buck Showalter debacle. I don't know whether you have. I don't know whether you ever will. But it's especially curious because the way that the Orioles have defied the projections for some of the last several years has been the bullpen. Sam Miller wrote an article earlier this winter looking at where exactly they have outperformed the preseason projections, and it is largely in the bullpen, and Buck Showalter gets a ton of credit for that. So two questions, I suppose. What form does Buck Showalter's good bullpen management take? Like, has he been lucky with getting good relievers, or has he made them good somehow? And how do you square that with what happened last year? Right. So if the whole Britain Gate situation doesn't happen, the narrative makes sense, right? Yeah. 
but now it, it kind of throws a wrench in the whole situation. I think that, like, you still need, they've still overperformed and, like, over churned out more random relief pieces than the average team. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't think that's necessarily due to Buck Showalter. I think that's due to a combination of things. Partially, it's because their organization is so horrendous at, like, developing starting pitching, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Brian Mattis was a great relief find because he was a horrible starting pitcher, you know? True. Same thing with, with Britain. And I think that, that they get a lot of credit for that. There are the Michael Given, Brad Brock type guys who you don't hear of until they're, they have a two ERA in a full season, right? And so that does seem like a bit of a trend. I think there is a difference between developing those guys and then utilizing them properly. I think Buck has done that. He's utilized them well enough that like no one notices him. You know, he, he garnered that reputation for a reason from the important old baseball men trademark. Mm-hmm. I, I see this as one specific crotchety blunder. I don't see it as a long-term trend, or at least that's what, as an Orioles fan, I tell myself. In two years, the Orioles could conceivably lose... Adam Jones, Manny Machado, Zach Britton will be a free agent. Reading down the list, Brad Brock could be a free agent. I guess it gets lesser scale from Not there. Brad Brock. Now, it's Brad <laughs> Brock has a fantastic. We don't need. He's good. He's good at pitching. He's he's a he's a thirty year old reliever. So the Orioles are in a precarious situation. I think Ben and I have actually dedicated an entire podcast to talking about just how precarious their organizational position is. Last year, they did spend more than they ever had on their major league roster by a significant margin, as a matter of fact. So the money is sort of there. But as we all know, the farm system isn't really there. It's not the youngest roster. They're coming up on a lot of players either leaving or getting very expensive. So what is the outlook of the Baltimore Orioles? Basically, what has to happen for them to do a rebuild or to avoid a rebuild? So... As a 21-year-old Orioles fan who grew up through the the muck, it's really terrifying. <laughs> My personal hope is that I'll have a job in baseball by the time the Orioles are terrible again so that I won't have to care about it. <laughs> you know, like I, that I can just look at baseball as like an observer, like not as a fan and as an observer so that I don't cry every <laughs> night because I think mm-hmm. they're going to be horrible. And I think they're going to be horrible for a long time. I joke with people like, will I have a child? before the Orioles win the World Series. And I think I will, right? I don't know what that says about their timeline as opposed to your timeline of having a child, which could happen at any moment. For sure. Like, I, I understand that, that you you do not have half the story there. But I, I guess the implication... Can we keep it that way? Right, yeah. The way I look at it in that, like, describing it like that, is I am a senior in college and I'm so far off from, like, thinking about having children... But, like, I'm still going to have a kid by the time the next time the Orioles are going to get. Life comes at you fast. Right. You could probably accidentally have a kid more easily than the Orioles could accidentally build a World oh, Series caliber baseball way team. Way easier. Way easier. <laughs> if all the sex ed classes I took in, in, in high school were correct and significantly, you know, easier. <laughs> I guess that the, the problem with the Orioles is that they keep hemorrhaging for the future. They've dealt away all these mid to high level prospects in return for, like, mid-season help, right? They traded away Kyle Davies, and they traded away Eduardo Rodriguez, and they traded away guys, like, that are in that zone, right? Jonah Heim, who isn't there yet, but I think very well could be. Guys who are not stars on your roster, but are, like, legitimate major league pieces that you have for six years of control. They've given those guys away for mid-season help to the point that there's no, like, fluff zone there's a buffer zone to allow them to like rebuild or be meh for a little bit like they're just gonna lose all these guys and be horrible forever and there's really no other way to sugarcoat that other than i hope the next two years are great and then it's just gonna be i don't think like they're gonna they're gonna have to get rid of duquette after like four years it's just it seems like an inevitable situation the current orioles front office is either gonna win in the next two or three years or that's it Mm mm-hmm And you have an amusing text message exchange in your BP piece with your mom, who is not a huge fan of Ubaldo Jimenez, although he almost made her come around briefly with the way he finished last season. My thing about Ubaldo, I'm curious about 
how good Ubaldo is at his best because we know that he is completely terrible at times. He seems to have mechanics that are not repeatable, and so he'll go into these funks that could last half a season and he'll be atrocious, but then he'll get everything together and he'll have a run of success. Like During one of those runs of success, do you think Ubaldo is like legitimately one of the best pitchers in baseball even though it might not last more than a single start and you like can't count on it <laughs> or even like the next inning but right. like when it's when it's happening do you think he is a really good pitcher no <laughs> <laughs> no i i mean it's a good question but no <laughs> the best pitchers in baseball are usually really fun to watch mm-hmm. even good ubaldo is just a horrible watching experience <laughs> for me at least cuz the the human body does not work in the way that his does and it makes me squirm to watch him throw a baseball even when he's good i hate watching him and i i hear he's a nice guy i think that's an important <laughs> caveat right he probably has children and raises them well and cooks them dinner and does all those things but i just can't watch the man play baseball i think that his worst is the most infuriating worst of any pitcher in baseball Mm -hmm. it has to be because (laughs) it's like oh we're gonna put ubaldo in oh we gave up six runs and walked three in the first two innings and then that'll happen like four starts in a row it's just or one al wild card game playoff in a row you know like there are all these things you love about baseball and you think about them for like most of february and march and you just can't wait for them to be in your life from like april to september and october yeah you bring up ubaldo like almost makes me want the season to not start (laughs) there's so many things about baseball that suck people forget that like right now spring training because it doesn't matter oh my god you're gonna hate your favorite team most of the time not, I, I don't mean you. I just mean like, hey, listeners, by the way, baseball sucks so often. So many people just infu- <laughs> I, I shouldn't. This is my segment. Baseball sucks. <laughs> my, hey, my career ERA is like 13 in college. Like, you don't have to tell me that baseball sucks. <laughs> yeah, but see, Team Mexico's ERA is 13.1, so you still get to advance to the next round. <laughs> yeah. One thing about baseball that does not suck, Manny Machado, who seems to just keep getting better, at least in certain ways, and last year, more power, I mean, good power in in 2015 too, but it seems like maybe he could get even better than this if he is this sort of power hitter and has plate discipline and pitchers come to fear him, then maybe he could become more patient. Maybe there's a a route for him to become an even better hitter on top of being one of the best couple defenders at that position and an absolute superstar already. Okay, so a couple years ago, right, the question was Machado, Trout, Harper. Yeah. And I remember Jason Parks would always say Machado. Uh-huh. And I think that that's still a ridiculous answer. <laughs> like, that's still the wrong answer. And I think he'd be the first one to tell you that. Uh-huh. But, like, Machado or Harper, I think, is a completely legitimate question. And I think I'd probably take Machado. He just feels mm-hmm. like he's going to age well. You know, it, it seems to me that he is getting better and better and more comfortable and more comfortable being a professional baseball player and hitting every day. And, like, just you watch him hit and Remember, like, the first couple of years, it was like, oh, those doubles are going to turn into homers? Yeah. And everyone, like, always laughs at that because it's a ridiculous thing to say. <laughs> right? And then they did. Like, they just did. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it just happened. And everyone was like, oh, well, I guess we were right about that. Right? <laughs> and I just – I think what if more of those doubles keep turning into homers? Who knows? He could he hit 37 last year. There's no reason to think that those numbers can't flip and he could hit 73. <laughs> Eventually, he could just hit zero doubles and they could all be right. home runs. So if you add his doubles to his home runs, it's 77 doubles or 77 home runs and that's more than Bond. It's just turning those doubles into homers. I think it it's going to happen. It has to happen. What about the one triple? Does that just stay a triple? That triple actually becomes a single. It's weird. (laughs) (laughs) Those triples are going to turn into singles. Well, that's what happens when you get old. (laughs) As a quick Manny Machado follow-up, last year, as discussed, his power got 
a little better. He walked less than he did in 2015. And Manny Machado, incredibly, is not even yet 25 years old. So just if you had to put a number on it, what do you think the actual chances are this season that Manny Machado consolidates his game and has a higher Fangraphs or Baseball Reference War, I guess, than Mike Trout? Who? What percentage chance? B- considering no injuries? Uh, Yeah, let's assume Trout is just like, hey, he's Trout. And Machado too. Zero. <laughs> Zero. Okay. Uh, I, that's that's. Uh, do, you, do you agree? Certain. Do you I agree? Well, I know you're interviewing me, but do you agree? I'm not going to answer that. I don't know number. Like I'm not good with numbers. Yeah. Okay. Like I think analytics are great and whatever. And I whenever you put not like I I I believe the smarter people than me, right? Mm-hmm. And the numbers are just right, and that's fine. But I I just don't see how that's possible. <laughs> okay. I would say that it's more like, I don't know, 10 or ten or 20%. I see a lot of upside of Manny Machado, but I'm not the Orioles fan here. I'm not trying to sell you on what Manny Machado does well. I, I see a lot of upside. And oh, look at this segue. Speaking of upside, except switching to the mound, <laughs> if there are two wow. players who could be, I know I'm a professional, if there are two players who could be critical to the Orioles sustaining success through whatever sort of transition period that might be approaching... There are two youngish starting pitchers being Kevin Gosman and Dylan Bundy. Kevin Gosman is a a sort of infuriating right-handed starting pitcher in that he can't really get right-handed batters out, but he's quite good against lefties because of his splitter, probably. And Dylan Bundy is still sort of an unknown, but suddenly there are reasons to be encouraged given that he was able to start 14-odd games last year and, and pitch pretty well. So... I guess I don't want to ask you to just sort of review what Kevin and Gosman and Dylan Bundy have done, but as you sort of look forward, do you see legitimate upside in, in Gosman and Bundy, or what, what sort of do you expect out of them, I guess, for the next couple of years? I think, so the short answer is Bundy yes, Gosman no. I just feel like I will be saying, Kevin Gosman, this is the year for like the next 10 years. And like, mm-hmm. he'll just keep being this, which is totally fine. He's good. Like he's, you know, no, he's very good. I'd say. But there was like a lot of hype to the point that it was right him and Stroman and he was supposed to rise to that tier. He just gives up too many home runs is really what it comes down to is that people are just able to, you know, elevate his ball and they hit it out too often. And that's fine. I don't think he needs to be that because I think Dylan Bundy will be that front end guy or has a chance to be. Orioles fans waited a long time for that. That was like, like you, your mom's like, hey, you can open your Christmas present in five years, but I'm putting it in your room. <laughs> like, I've never done Christmas, so but I assume that that's that you know is relevant to a lot of people listening. In this podcast, Jake Mintz encourages people not to save for retirement. Yeah, exactly. Why do that? You know, we're all going to die at fifty anyway. So Dylan Bundy, like. I remember we used to, like, I live in D.C., and we used to go watch him pitch in the minors, and it was just like, oh, I can't wait until this, because he, he was going to be that good. And then he just, like, three years left. Like, they were just gone. Just three years. And every other Orioles starting pitching story is like, oh, he's, like, Matt Hopgood is just fat and bad. <laughs> right. Like, okay, that's that. You know, <laughs> then, um, but then Bundy came back, right? And he came back, and he was really good. And he got tired, it seemed, over the course of the year because his body couldn't really hold up to the workload and his velo dropped and he was a little less effective as the year kind of went on at the very end. And we've been waiting for like the mythical Dylan Bundy cutter, you know. It's like the Dylan Bundy cutter is like that you have a really good friend of yours who can't wait to introduce you to this other really good friend of theirs. And you hear all about them, but like you never actually meet them, right? And like we might get to meet them this year. Like they might be yeah. in town. You have a lot of really good analogies for what these Orioles starting pitchers are like. <laughs> this is like what I think about when I'm not playing in my college baseball games. Do the <laughs> Orioles starting pitchers? That sucks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and how good that they would be at the D3 level. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about Chris Tillman getting shut down and then having a cortisone injection in mid-March? Do you have an analogy for that? No. I don't think it's good, though. <laughs> it's like, that. that is bad, is what that is. That is B-A-D bad. The Orioles, like, they do this. They they do this. They, there's, like, a trend where they'll be like, oh, it's just a small thing. Oh, he's going to do rehab. Oh, we'll give him a cortisone shot. 
always be out for the year. Right, that happened with Weeders. Funny, we were just <laughs> talking to Ted Berg about the Mets, and he said that's what the Mets do, which I think a lot of Mets fans would agree with. Maybe that is what every team thinks because that's what pitcher right. injuries are like, and they're frustrating, yes. and we all that's get mad true. when they happen. Right. It seemed like the Orioles especially like farted away the Hunter Harvey situation, uh-huh. which is kind of at least what comes to my mind right away. Tillman just has weirdly been this constant force in the Orioles' like recent run of success where he's just always around. Like He's always around, and he's going to pitch every five days, and he's going to be pretty good, and that's fine, and that's sufficient. I think Gossman's just going to be the next Tillman, you know, from like a productivity standpoint. So Jeff and I were just talking on our last show about Adam Jones's defense, and it seems like StatCast stats sort of back up his reputation as a good fielder, which the numbers previously have not always supported. But right. at the same time, he has not been the hitter he once was. Is Adam Jones just a average or worse hitter at this point? Is that just sort of what he is? I mean, if you look at his war by year, it fits like the bell curve, right? Mm-hmm. Like it just it just looks natural. So he had B-Ref has him at 1.1 last year at age 30, right? So that like it would be perfectly reasonable for him to just flutter around like one or two for a couple more years and then like retire, right? That would be like a perfectly reasonable end to a career. And you look at it and you'd be like, oh, Adam Jones is pretty good. Oh, yeah, he's pretty mm-hmm. good. You know, and that and that's kind of weird and sad to think about because he is still treated like a top end guy. And he very well could still be one. It's just that it feels like for him so much of his game is the bat speed. And that's what you lose when you get old. Well, there's you lose a lot of other things. I mean, you lose your hair and your teeth. <laughs> Maybe, like, you know, like my, my dad's getting old and his bat speed was the first thing to go. So I think <laughs> I think for Jones that's it's definitely a concern. But I still think he's got a couple more years of productivity. I don't think he'll be an embarrassingly bad Oriole, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. <laughs> a few years ago, playing for a team that I guess I'll just refer to as whoever the Solar Sox are. I think that might be a Fall League team. Jonathan Scope. Mesa. Mesa. Perfect. Thank you, Jake Mintz. Uh, Jonathan Scope played for the Mesa Solar Sox. I take you at your word. I'm not looking this up. He batted 83 times. He uh, he hit whatever. He struck out whatever. He walked 16 times. Jonathan Scope. 16 walks in 83 plate appearances <laughs> for this team. Uh, last That's season, like his career high. Yeah. Well, you've, you have <laughs> take, turned your time machine to forward in this question. Last season, Jonathan Scope walked 21 times as a full-time big league player. The previous year, 9 walks. The year before that, 13 walks. Jonathan Scope doesn't walk. But what is unusual is that Jonathan Scope, at his best, he's demonstrated some, I would say, colossal raw power, right? His longest home runs are really impressive home runs. Last season, he didn't really tap into that so much. I know he hit 25 home runs, but they were of the, I guess, less colossal variety. He he didn't walk. He still struck out a bunch. His general numbers kind of went down. He still chased out of the zone way too often. Yet, the take-home message, Jonathan Scope, still 25 years old. So you, do you see any sort of reason to hope here that Jonathan Scope could look like he actually has a clue at the plate? Or is he just going to kind of keep running into home runs until he's old? I think I kind of like the version that I have now. <laughs> like, it's it's so fun to watch. He's almost like a like a pudgier Javi Baez in a lot of ways. Right, like he's way worse, way worse defensively, obviously. <laughs> but like at the plate, like he's going to swing as hard as he can and he's going to do that every time and you're just going to have to deal with it as a fan. You know, you're going to have to sit there and you're going to have to watch it. I just don't <laughs> see any reason why that would change. He's not on the edge of like the precipice of not being a major league player. You know, like he's going to he's going to make his money and he's going to go out there and he's going to play every day and he's going to be an effective efficient player to the point where adjusting his approach all that much might actually be detrimental to him, right? Like I'm, if I'm Jonathan Scope and I'm like, oh, I'm hitting 25 homers a year and I'm worth 2.5 war, whatever that is, like I <laughs> I am fine with that. <laughs> to be clear, are you speaking as Jake Mintz or as Jonathan Scope? <laughs> I'm not sure. I think I lost the train of thought on that one. <laughs> like a medley of the two. How many players on Team Netherlands know what war is? <laughs> I think a lot of people in the Netherlands know what war is. <laughs> well, how many people from Curacao know what war is? 
Not really sure what Curacao's military history is, but <laughs> I'll do a, a Wikipedia deep dive on that in just a second. So I always struggle to spell Curacao. Curacao. Yeah, there's some punctuation in there you have to remember. So another thing we talked about on our last show when talking about outfielders and defensive stats and stat cast was how terrible Mark Trumbo is at outfielding. And oh, so bad. <laughs> he's he's listed on the depth charts as a DH. How strict do you think the Orioles will be about making sure that that's actually the role he plays? Well, I actually thought they were going to be pretty strict about that. And then they just went and re-signed Pedro Alvarez like three days ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I don't really believe them anymore because mm-hmm. the outfield, if, if you put Trumbo DH, it's Seth Smith, Adam Jones, and Hyunsu Kim. Mm-hmm. That's fine. That's okay. But I think they're going to try and sneak Trumbo out there and write a pretty decent amount to get Alvarez at pass against lefties or righties, righties. He's a lefty. So yeah, though, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, there's so many options for right and left. <laughs> I think I think they'll definitely try and play him in the outfield enough that we'll have like a fair like we'll have enough bad outfield Mark Trumbo gifts this season that we can share with each other on the internet. I, I, I think as time goes on, he'll shift to DH full time in this on this team once like they realize that Pedro Alvarez is another year older and worse and they won't re sign him. But this year, yeah, he'll he'll play out there and it'll be better to watch. To be clear, if there are a bunch of Mark Trumbo outfield gifs, you probably will not be able to share them freely on the internet. <laughs> I, well, don't wanna, I don't want to. I don't want to go can, any, any deeper there. We I think can I'm text them to, to each other. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think is is my last question. What I like the most about the Orioles, what I am constantly fascinated by with the Orioles, what I want to write about all the time with the Orioles is the bullpen. And obviously, there is Zach Britton at the top. He is essentially the modern-day Mariano Rivera, although for maybe one-sixth as long so far. Mariano Rivera super good. Britton is there. Everybody knows super he's good. amazing, except for Buckshaw Walter that one time. But then it gets really interesting behind <laughs> him because Darren O'Day, when he's healthy, is really good. Michael Givens is as good against righties as you could ever ask for. Brad Brock is good. Oliver Drake, Donnie Hart, these people have looked good. Even Richard Blyer, Bleer, I don't know how to pronounce it. It doesn't matter. I like his numbers as a lefty. He looks pretty good this bullpen is really good really deep and i guess i don't even have i haven't formed this into a, a good question but i know that you follow the orioles closer than any other team but as you look at this unit and let's just assume that we're talking about bullpens at full health is there another bullpen in baseball including cleveland because they're in baseball is there another bullpen that you would take over baltimore's right now i would rather have the orioles for the regular season i'd rather have cleveland for the playoffs mm-hmm. i think that's that's definitely the case. And that's not just because of what happened with Buck and Britain. I just think, could Britain be stretched out for like four, three or four innings at a time? Pro- like maybe, but we just don't know, right? Like the known commodity is that Andrew Miller can do that. And once I reach the playoffs, I'd rather have that. I will say this about the Orioles bullpen, because it, it seems like you just wanted me to say something about it. And that's fine. I, I, I can do that. So it, <laughs> it seems to me that like when teams watch their clothes, like team, Fans hate their closers, right? Is what yeah, the sense often. I get. Oh, yes. Right? It's yes, like, that was a oh, question. Like, they're always, like, nervous. Like, mm-hmm. oh, they never they never feel comfortable. That applies even if you have Zach Britton. Like, even if you have Zach Britton, you still don't think he's going to get the same, which says maybe a lot about me or, like, the psychology of humans, right? But you still are nervous and, like, don't believe in the bullpen, which is kind of nutty and something <laughs> that I found kind of interesting. Because I would, I would, like, watch O's games and be – and tell myself, oh, they're going to get the save. And then I'd be like, no, they can't because it's a closer. <laughs> but then he would just go get another save. <laughs> and then Michael Givens is like my favorite pitcher to watch in baseball. Yeah. And not a lot of people know who he is, I think. He was a converted – he was drafted in the second round as a shortstop. And like most people in the world, couldn't hit. But unlike most people in the world, he throws 96 from the side. <laughs> so now he's in the big leagues and this is the best to watch. He's on Team USA, right? I think so. I think so. You, you know what? If he's not, he should be. Michael Givens, by the way, in his limited major league career, he's allowed a 404 OBP to lefties. That's bad. Against righties, 248. They've slugged 263. <laughs> Michael Givens, so good against righties. I don't really know what he's doing against lefties, but that's fine. He can work on that. <laughs> he's also definitely not on Team Israel. 
<laughs> All right. You want to take us out with a win total prediction for this team? 82. Is that a cop-out? No. Nah. No, 82. Yeah. 82. That's a number of wins that they could have. That's <laughs> yeah. That's fair game. Yeah. 82. And then next year, I think they'll be in the playoffs next year, and it'll be like the last hurrah uh-huh. of this team. But this year, they're they're just going to be mad. Like, they're, I... They're, they're just going to be too many injuries and the rotation won't hold up. And maybe I'm a pessimist, but uh, hug your families. <laughs> All right. Well, you can follow Jake or at least half the time. It's Jake at Cespedes BBQ. You can listen to him on the Cespedes Family Barbercast. We wish you well getting that ERA below eight and graduating and finding a job. <laughs> I appreciate it. Wow, that's a lot. That seems like a really heavy... A lot of things yeah, to go think about. While you I need a lot of luck. Right you have to do all of those things like in the next, <laughs> hey, I don't know, nine months or so. Yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm doing a good job so far this year, you know, uh, on the mound. I've only walked seven and hit three in seven innings. So <laughs> yeah, that's a good day for Ubaldo sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's has that's the what yips. I tell myself every day when I wake up. Good day for Ubaldo. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Jake. Thank you. All right, that's it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support for the podcast include John Gilbert, Aaron Lemon Strauss, Justin Held, Sarah Cumby, and Aaron Young. Thank you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Keep your questions and comments coming to me and Jeff via the Patreon messaging system and via email at podcast at fangraphs.com. We'll be back on Monday with previews for the Rangers and Marlins. Till then, we hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will talk to you next week. We should talk about the Orioles. Yeah, let's do that. First question, what are you going to do with your life? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a bigger question, probably not for Effectively Wild, but just a quick little warning. I am currently in Florida with my baseball, my college team. Mm-hmm. I am in a condo with six other, five other guys. and oh, That can't be a, good. No. And I have quiet for some time, but if anything happens, I sincerely apologize. <laughs> just, just a warning. <laughs> All right, let's start before something happens. All right, that was fun, and your yeah. baseball team didn't bother us at all. No, they didn't. Hey, Brad. 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 <laughs> Brad. Brad. Thanks for not bothering. Everyone says thanks for not bothering us. Oh, my Brad's starting tomorrow, <laughs> so he's very quiet. Don't uh, talk well, to Brad. We'll talk to him, him then. Space. Yeah. <laughs>